0: Let's give him a round of applause. So when Andy was called from Madagascar to South Africa, he didn't do what Jonah did. He actually got on the right plane and went to the right place. Unlike Jonah, if you remember, God comes to Jonah. And he says, Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh and you need to tell them the message of the gospel. And uh, at the end of Jonah, we, we find out that Jonah didn't want to go because he knew God was kinder than he wanted him to be. And what you pick up in the life of Jonah is this guy who is radically nationalistic. He loves Israel. He loves the people of God. He loves the story of God. I imagine if you prick Jonah, he just bleeds the story of Israel. Everything inside of him was passionate about who God was through Israel and what God was doing in this amazing story of God. But, but it seemed like one of the things Jonah was missing was actually the God of Israel. He was more entrenched in who Israel was and and all these promises to Israel and what Israel could become, that he had lost a little bit of sight of the God who was over Israel. And that's what's so fascinating about this guy. He's He's a passionate nationalist, and he's a very good sinner. So we're in good company. Jonah knew very well, and, and, and he was not so subtle. That's what I love about Jonah. Honestly, we are so subtle. We find such creative ways to dodge God. Jonah just blatantly says, no, God. God tells him to go there, and he gets a ticket to the other place. It's, it's as simple as that. He is a brilliantly honest sinner, And I think we'd do better sometimes to learn from Jonah, to be really honest sinners, to be able to go, actually, this is what I'm doing, and to not hide it behind all kinds of nuances and subtleties. So what we're going to do today is we're going to carry on, we're in verse 4, and we're going to just look through a bunch of aspects that we learn. And if there was a title, I'd call it Storms, Identity, Idolatry, and Seeing God. Storms, Identity, Idolatry, and Seeing God. So we're going to meander through the story, and by the end, I hope that you found yourself deeply enriched by God's Word. So here it goes in verse 4, "'Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea,' And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and cried to each other, uh, cried out to his own God, and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. First thing that I think we can learn from Jonah today is that we shouldn't be surprised by the storms that are attached to our sin. Don't be surprised by the storms that are attached to our sin. Uh, There's a movie called The Inconvenient Truth. I think that could be the title of this point. It's inconveniently true that there are storms that connect themselves to our rebellion from God. Tim Keller says it so beautifully, but one of the important things I think to first and foremost get in our minds is that not every storm we go through is a product of our sin. Did you hear me? Not every storm we go through is a product of our sin, There are some things that just happen in life. Jesus said, you will have troubles in John chapter 16. Troubles and difficulties will come. However, in Jonah's case and often in our case, is that every act of of disobedience to God will have some storm attached to it. It's one of the amazing themes of the Old Testament that you'll pick up over and over, especially in the wisdom literature and especially in the book of Proverbs. We just can't uh, expect that our lives, if we turn our backs on God or that we do something that's contradictory to the will of God, that there won't be some corresponding storm that will come about in our lives. It's a a bit of an awkward one, and it's one of those moments where you can hear a pin drop because we live in a world that doesn't like to connect the consequences of our lives to our own actions. We do a a very good job in, in modern Western society to disconnect our activities to the consequences that might come from them. But the Bible sometimes speaks about God punishing sin. It says the Lord detests all the proud of heart. They won't go unpunished. Oof. But some other times, uh, you know, he talks about even punishing the people. The violence of the wicked will drag them away. Listen to this. The sin itself. the, The violence of the wicked will drag them away, for they refuse to do what is right. Isn't that interesting? The violence of the wicked will drag them away for they refuse to do what is right. There's a sense that our own sinfulness, our own choices can drag ourselves away into a kind of experienced storm. Derek Kidner writes, sin sets up strains in the structure of life which can only end in breakdown." Sin sets up strains, difficulties, challenges, tensions in our lives, which ultimately will lead to some sort of breakdown. It, it's, it's inconvenient, and, and it's awkward to listen to. We, we really live in a world that, that is trying to disconnect our, uh, the, the concept of sin from humanity. Like, really, you do you, you become, you do whatever feels right for you. That's the motto of our culture. And the Bible flies in the face of that and says, no, you don't do you. You do what glorifies God, what you're made for, the deepest part of you. If you're redeemed and called by Jesus, it's not to do you, it's to find a way to express love towards God and love towards fellow humanity, and that is to do the opposite of what sin is. If you choose to sin, you can anticipate some sort of storm, some kind of, 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 of uh, uh, consequence that will come about, some ex- corresponding experience that will be unhelpful, that will create a strain, that will create a breakdown in your life. Sin always hardens the conscience. It locks you in the prison of your own defensiveness and rationalizations and eats you up slowly from the inside, says Tim Keller. All sin has a mighty storm attached to it. And the image is pretty powerful. If you think about a storm, uh, it, it, it's unique. You know, Even in the most technologically advanced world, we still can't control storms. Isn't that frustrating? You can't control storms. You watch in the news. These storms come and go, and we do everything we can to mitigate any of the pain of the storm, but we can't stop the storm. You can't bribe a storm. You can't baffle it with any good logic or or fancy language. A storm is a storm, and it will not stop. You can't control the weather. Numbers 32, verse 23 says, You'll be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Wow, this is an awkward way to start a talk. Hey, you normally want to start with some good energy and something that sucks you in. But, but Jonah today finds himself in a storm of his own making, a storm because he turned his back on God, and the scripture clearly says, "The Lord sent a great wind on the sea." It was a pure and direct consequence because of Jonah's rebellion, because of Jonah's turning his back, his own sinfulness. I recently read a book that talks about the fact that much of our um, anxiety and depression it, it seems to have increased with the decrease of our, our awareness of what a sin really is. And, and, and what the writer is not saying again, and let me clarify this, is that because you've got anxiety and depression, the more you have of that, the more you are a sinner. But what's interesting is that there is a correlation between our lack of awareness between what is right and wrong and our ability to say you know what I need to turn from this I need to own this I need to face the facts of what's going on in my life so that I can move forward and uh, the the author basically says hey as the increase of anxiety and depression has come so has there been a decreasing awareness of sin it's an interesting correlation that he draws Sin is a real thing. Turning our backs on God is a real thing. So last week we spoke about sins of omission, sins of commission. Sins of omission are not doing the things we know we should do. Sins of commission are doing, things that th- doing the things we know we should not do. You can anticipate that there will be some anxiety, some stress, some strain, some relational complexity when we begin to turn our back on the ways of God and begin to turn to our own desires, to our own sinful needs. Hey, I had a, a whole bunch of these, and, and I continued to become aware of the storms that follow my own sinfulness. They can be really small, from a, from a lie that follows you to needing to tell the truth and the, and the conscious uh, need to, to get right with that, to maybe some, uh, an outburst of anger where you, you let loose and then suddenly you, you're, you've got this, this cloud of complexity in a relationship that you've got with someone. The storm will follow you wherever you go, and Jonah is no different, and you and I are no different. Two things I think storms do is, firstly, they mess with the image of God of our, of our making, you see, we, uh, in Tim Keller's words, he says, we have a kind of God of our personal preference. We set up a God and we say, this is what I want God to be. In Jonah's case, he wants God to be a God who, who makes Israel look amazing, but definitely is not merciful to people like the Ninevites. He doesn't want that. And so he turns his back on that God. He says, no, God, you can't be merciful like that. Be merciful to Israel, not to Nineveh. For goodness sake, God, that isn't cool. And the storm comes to shake him comes to shake him and say, actually Jonah, you don't get to define God. You don't get to create a God of your own making. When a storm comes that follows our sinfulness, it's a storm that comes to say, hey, have you chosen the God of your making? Are you shaping him in your imagination? Hey, maybe the storm is a, is a gift to you to help you to see actually who God really is. To take a second look and to go, oh my. I don't, have, I don't serve a God who just gives me everything on a platter. I don't get to have my slice of the, the relational cake and to eat it. I don't get to tell people to do everything I want but never to serve them. I don't get to, to kind of have it my way. I don't get to just serve Korea all day and night and then expect to have an amazing marriage and a beautiful family that just loves me. I'm going to create a storm if that's, my, if that's what I'm up to. There's going to be some storms that follow my sinful priorities. They will come, and they'll catch me out. And if I think God is wound and wired to serving on a silver platter, all my preferences, then there will be storms that will follow me. Are you guys tracking me? A little bit awkward, but really important. The second thing we'll see, and that's probably a little lighter and, uh, and, and, and hopefully going to help us, is that storms come to reveal our idolatries and our identity. It says, uh, as we carry on from verse five, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. We carry on where it says, they ask this question in verse eight, tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. I don't know if you see these questions. I don't know if I should give you a clue or if I should treat you like you know grade 12s or varsity students. This was like high grade, I never spotted it. But can you see an interesting correlation between the questions that are asked and the way that Jonah answers them? Look at it, it says, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? What's interesting about his answer? While you're thinking about what's interesting about his answer, what I want you to get here is these guys are basically asking a question of identity. They're saying, who are you? What are you all about? And by virtue of them asking, who are you? They're actually asking, whose are you? What uh, it was so important in that culture was when they're saying, who are you and, and what do you worship, Basically, what you worshipped was actually what you had given yourself to. That was the the thing that you trusted yourself to. So when they're asking, who are you, and what work do you do, and where have you come from, they're asking the question of identity, who are you? But fundamentally, they're saying not just who are you, but whose are you? Who who have you given yourself to? Which deity do you believe in? There, There are multiple deities out there. Which one do you believe in? No doubt they had many gods. Remember, they threw things over the board and they cried out to their god. They believed in multiple gods. Now they're looking at Jonah going, so which god do you believe in? Which of the many? And what's interesting is that Jonah answers the question. I hope you've had some time to think about the answer. In the reverse order that he's asked it. He goes straight to the last question and he answers it first. Did you notice that? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew. I am a Hebrew. This guy, and theologians agree all over that this is a very telling sign that Jonah is a guy who finds his identity not in God primarily, but in his national identity as an Israelite. He goes to their last question and he answers it first and he says, this is who I am. I am a Hebrew. Look at me. It's like he's got his, his best outfit on. Maybe he's, he went to a fancy private school and it's the first thing he can say is, look, this is where I went. He's, he's identified himself. He's caught himself into the sense of identity and he is so stoked that he's a Hebrew that he lives out of that identity as his primary sense of his value and his worth. And what's interesting is that although we, I suppose, in our generation don't have multiple gods, we just don't, we, 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 we have a kind of version of that. Let me read what Tim Keller says. He, says. he says it like this. We may be tempted to say something like, people no longer believe in gods and often don't believe in any god at all. So this superstitious view that your identity is rooted in your worship, that's irrelevant today. That's what we might say. To say this is to commit a fundamental error. Certainly, Christians would agree that there are not multiple personal conscious supernatural beings attached to every profession place and race there's no actual roman god named mercury the god of commerce to whom we should burn animal sacrifices yet no one doubts that financial profit can become a god an unquestioned ultimate goal for either an individual or for an individual life or a whole society To which persons and moral standards and relationships and communities are sacrificed. And while there is no Venus, goddess of beauty, nevertheless, untold numbers of men and women are obsessed with body image or enslaved to an unrealizable idea of sexual fulfillment. Isn't that interesting? We may not have these these deities of the Romans or the Greeks, but we still do have things that we sacrifice to to in worship, in love, finding a sense of identity. The Bible describes that as idolatry. Hey, what was Jonah's idolatry? His idolatry, as I keep saying, is his, his national identity. He was a proud Jewish man. Oh, and he also worshiped God. If it was convenient, if it suited his identity preferences, if it suited who he deemed God to be, if it suited what he really worshipped. One scholar puts it like this, since Jonah identifies himself firstly ethnically, then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his self-identity. If his race was more significant than his religion, that might explain why Jonah was reluctant to share the mercy of God with another nation so different from his own. When loyalty to God and his word were required, he chose something else. And it's not very dissimilar today with Christians. So many Christians today seem to exhibit similar attitudes. Rather, their relationship with God uh, through Christ has not gone deep enough into their hearts. Just as in Jonah's life, God and his love is not their identity's most fundamental layer. Of course, race is not the only thing that can block the development of a Christian self-understanding. You may sincerely believe that Jesus died for your sins, and yet your significance and security can be far more grounded in your career and financial worth than in love of God through Christ. Shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists, greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. All this comes because it's not Christ's love, but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. Hey, Jonah has a wrestle with his identity, and he finds himself realizing that he probably hasn't got his primary identity in the love and the mercy of God. In fact, one of his major issues that he's got is that God is merciful. He wishes God wasn't merciful on the Ninevites, and he will keep saying it throughout. So, what do we do? Well, we carry on with Jonah. Thirdly, we see storms as opportunities to reshape and to reveal our identity. See storms as an opportunity to reshape and to reveal our identity. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will be calm. That's, uh, I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. How's this for amazing people? Uh, and this is a good case, by the way, that many people, you might go, hey, the church is the place to be. Hey, Jonah was a representation of the church and the people outside the church, these sailors were way better people than Jonah was. Listen to this. The men did their best to row back to land, but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before. Hey, stay humble as a church. Don't assume you're better than because you you've found the God of the Bible. Don't assume you're better than because God has loved you. God has loved you by mercy and there are many amazing people in the world who are probably kinder, wiser, more generous than you or me. They cried out to the Lord, please Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold, do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you Lord have done as you pleased. This is the first time in Jonah's life that he owns his stuff. He realizes for the first time, just a little glimpse of ownership, that maybe it's him who caused this issue. Maybe it's him who did this, who's resisting God, who sent him to Nineveh. Maybe he starts to say to himself, I'm more passionate about Israel than about the God, that, uh, that he's, that he's, uh, the God of Israel. I put myself first, and I'm the one who's got us into this mess he owns it hey one of the first ways to begin to find your identity freshly in god is to begin to own where you really are to begin to own the fact that hey maybe you're more sinful than you first thought and maybe just maybe god is more loving than you ever dreamt more sinful than you first thought but but maybe god's more loving than you ever imagined that's the, that's the journey of finding your identity in Christ is to realize that the stuff that we don't even always realize in our lives is what we've attached ourselves to. Most of us would go, "You know what? I think I found my identity in Christ." But most of us would, if we scratch, when we go through storms, it's when we realize what is actually connecting, uh, uh, what we've connected our identity to. Hey, it's when we go through difficulties, and, and you know what uh, the Bible says is that we don't need to. You don't need to go through a storm, by the way. God can, you can prevent yourself going through storms. You can avoid some of the storms, not all of them. There will be trouble, but you can avoid some of them, I would suggest, by increasingly humbly coming before God and letting God shape your identity in His love. By increasingly humbly coming and saying, God, it's by your mercy that I am saved. I am nothing apart from your amazing love. And because of that, I come to give myself freshly to you. Oh, God, I I know my temptations. I know my temptations, by the way. I I love building. I love starting new things. I love adventures. I love going into new spaces. We had a week of leave this week, and, and I, I just realized man, to be, uh, my, my, my illusion of happiness is to be in adventure, to be out on rivers catching fish, to be uh, going into wild and wonderful places and, and exploring amazing things. By the fourth day of my little holiday, a little storm cloud gathered over me. When I realized that I found identity in my own sense of adventure. And, and progress, and, and learning new things. Everything in me wants to catch a grunter on the Breda River, and I cannot do it. And it's tricky, and it's getting to me. But you know what what, what? what ends up happening is that I find an identity in this progress, and I begin to convince myself that I deserve it, that I deserve time from 6.30 till 8.30 or 9 on our holidays when our kids are sitting at home, waiting for Dad to come home, And you've got a nine-year-old, and I know how to fish, and I've got a nine-year-old who doesn't yet know how to fish. And the gap's not getting smaller. The gap's getting bigger. Why? Because dad's got an identity in progress and adventure and fun, and he wants to go and and get his own adventure and do his own stuff. And the cloud of, 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 of a storm begins to brew as you realize you're serving self. You're identifying. I'm identified in what I can accomplish. Half of you are going, Rog, go fish more, bro. (laughs) Half of you are going, yeah, I had a dad like you. I had a dad like you. And it still hurts to this day because he never taught me, and he never showed me, and he never walked with me, and he didn't care. And when he did care, it was always after he cared for himself. Because he found an identity in something other than the love of God. I will get to fish. I will get to do my own stuff. But I increasingly, if I want to become the man God has called me to be, need to be the kind of man who first and foremost says, I trust you, God. That if I identify myself in your love and I let you love me, I may fish less, but I might get three fishing buddies. And I may be able to nurture some disciples along the way. I may never fish again. I may never catch another wave if you call me to. But I'm identified in your love, not in what I can do or accomplish or go or pleasure myself in any way. That's my story. What's yours? Because for each of us, there's a sense by which we we connect ourselves to an identity. And a cloud or a storm will follow us as we choose something other than the love of Christ. See storms as opportunities to reveal what are you finding your identity in. They're gonna come. The storms will come. It'll be financial pressure. It'll be the loss of something you love. It'll be some relational strife. And when that comes, can I plead with you? Don't let this talk be like a, a kind of on the windscreen. You just wipe it off because everything's going well now. Remind yourself, what are you connecting your identity to? Because there will be a storm that will come, a cloud that will follow. I don't want it to be at my kid's 21st when there's just sweet stuff that's said. And you go, oh my gosh, I've wasted so much time on myself. And maybe I still won't have caught that grunter. Fourthly, see storms as opportunities to see the one true God. God. See storms as opportunities to see the one true God. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. I often think of Jonah a bit like myself in the first few kind of months of following Jesus. In fact, before following Jesus, probably even more so. I knew the truth about the gospel, and, uh, and, and I so respected my parents' faith and love in Jesus, but I myself had chosen my own way, and I was partying and drinking, and I remember sometimes going to the quiet, like in those dark toilets in a club, and uh, it, was like, it was just a bit quieter. And um, I remember telling people about Jesus, I was like, couldn't believe it, but, but somehow I got to tell people about Jesus. Even before I was following Jesus, I was telling people about him and I knew even churches to send people to. So I'm sitting in a club, doing everything Jesus didn't, wouldn't want me to do and telling these very desperate people who I could see were just so as lost as me, the truth. And I often think of Jonah a bit like that. He's just such a terrible kind of representation of Christ and yet somehow God still uses him it's remarkable. And uh, it's, again, it starts in, verse, in, in chapter 1. They took Jonah and threw him overboard. And yet at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. What an amazing story that the storm helped these people, and we'll see including Jonah, to actually see God. God. I think one of the problems, and it's an alarming thought, is that everything we worship other than Jesus has no interest in us. Your career doesn't care a thing for you. Your future and your cash and your investments, even the things that you think are gonna care for you. Maybe it's that companion you found or the companion you hope you will one day found find. Do you know that they can't love you the way you need to be loved? Do you realize that the thing that you long for and you want so desperately is incapable of loving you the way you need to be loved? It's just not designed for it. It's impossible. The best thing we can do right now is to to stop. That's what the Bible describes as idolatry, is that chasing after something that will satisfy us and, and make us deeply happy, not realizing that it doesn't care at all for us. Because it wasn't made to care for us. It was only, at best, made to point us to the one who does care for us. And that's why we're meant to, at the end of each month, look at our salaries and go, Hey, God, all of this is yours. Some of it I give to these people. Some of us I give to this church. Some of it I, I, I give towards education. Some of it, but all of it's yours, God. None of it can make me happy. None of it can solve the problems of the deepest parts of my heart. hey, I want to encourage you not to let this talk, if you're in a good space, kind of just swish off the windscreen, move on. Identity is most deeply attached to those things that we idolize. Idolatry is about what we love and worship, what we treasure and what we live for. And most of us don't even know that we're doing it. What God does is he calls us into seeing him freshly. He calls us into seeing him. We've been through so many storms in this first term. I mean, Personally, we've had one or two, but but just in our extended little circle of this family and and, and our wider uh, uh, biological family, we've seen miscarriages. We've had two cancer diagnoses, two people uh, walking loved ones through palliative care, retrenchments, uh, business partnerships crumbling, terminal cancer, children with learning disabilities, friends and family leaving to go to different places. I've seen so many storms in people's lives. Difficult, real difficult things. And I haven't listed so many of the things that are listing in your head right now. There's only two things that could happen when a storm comes. You either let it uh, frustrate your vision of God, or you let it reshape your vision of God. And you begin to see the God that really is there. You've probably heard this one. C.S. Lewis says, Pain insists on being attended to, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God is probably trying to wake you to see who he is. No doubts in these storms and these troubles. I'm not talking about just the storms attached to sin yet. not just any storms now that you may be going through. Would you let them show you who God is? Tim Keller says there's mercy deep inside our storms. There's mercy deep inside our storms, something Jonah did not want to admit. Storms can wake us up to truths we would otherwise never see. Storms can develop faith, hope, love, patience, humility, and self-control in us that nothing else can. It's usually not clear until years later. If ever in this life, says Keller, what good God was accomplishing in the difficulties that we suffered. Let me land with a storm that happened a couple hundred years later in the life of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 8, we see Jesus is also sleeping in a boat. No doubt the author is aware of the Jonah story. He was saturated in the Old Testament. And and he, he paints this picture almost as if it's like a replay of the story of Jonah. And Jesus was sleeping, and the disciples went, and they woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Sound familiar? He replied, you of little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up, and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. This time, Jesus is sleeping, and he's woken. But notice what he does. He looks his disciples in the eyes, and he asks, why are you so afraid? Essentially, he's going, can you see with your own eyes who is right in front of you? As you go through your storms, can you see who is right beside you? The God of love. When you place your identity in anything other than Jesus, it's, it's a fear-based decision. You're, you're saying, my career can fix this. My companion, they'll fix this. My cash, it'll sort it all out. When you look up and you look at Jesus, you go, I trust that only you can. I trust that only you can fix this. What if the storms that you're in, whether self-inflicted or by your own sin, or simply the storms of life, what if they're a gift to look our fear in the eyes, then to look away and look Jesus in the eyes and to receive a new identity? What if the storms you're in are actually a gift? To see God. What's so amazing is that Jesus doesn't do what Jonah did. Jesus doesn't jump in and go, okay, cool. I'll go in, guys, and I'll solve your problem like Jonah did. Why? Because he knew his storm was coming later. He knew he was going to face the ultimate storm. And right now he was showing that he was the God over everything, including nature and storms that come our way. And he looks at his disciples and he says, why so afraid? And then he commands the seas and they go calm. That's the God who's with you. Why would you find identity in anything else? Why would you choose to to let yourself keep in the cycle of trusting anything other than Jesus? He's God over all of it. And you go, but but how do I trust that? Well, well, firstly, He shows it as He calms the storm. All those disciples who witnessed the storm being calmed went to their death, professing He was the Lord. Maybe you're a skeptic. Hey, try just. Do some mental arithmetic with me for a moment. You're going, I don't believe this Jesus stuff. Explain to me why all of them went to their death still saying it. If, if it was a hoax and actually he never did it and he never rose from the dead, is there any good reason to just keep you know, pitching that story? Why not just soften it a little? Why not just you know, make him seem a little less controversial? But all of them, to the man. I think there's maybe one who died of his old age. Thomas, possibly, out in India. We don't know. The rest of them were martyred for saying that one who calmed the storm, he's also the one who went into the greatest storm on our our behalf. He's the one who went to the cross. And, And scriptures teach that he didn't just go to a cross. He went to the cross on our behalf so that the final and the most important storm that we could ever face was when we face our maker, that we wouldn't have to face it, that we would face it covered by his love. And that we'd get a fresh new start, we'd get a new identity in him, that we would be called loved children of God, sons and daughters of the king, with a whole new way of being. Not trying to achieve, not identifying ourselves as someone who can prove themselves, but someone who's already been approved. Loved, accepted, because he died on my behalf. And he rose again and he says, come into my new life. Come into this new world, come into this new kingdom and partner with me. Can I ask the band to come up. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. Why don't we just do exactly the same thing that they did? This is your day of rest, and I want to encourage you into a, an experience of God's rest. Stop striving. Stop trying to accomplish the one thing you think you were made for or the five things you think you were made for and it's all in your own strength and it's all to prove it to someone or something. What if today is another step towards just resting in the identity that God's given you? What if today's the first day for some? You just come home. It's, that's what the Bible calls it, homecoming. You, you come home and you say, God, I'm, I'm done in that world of chasing. I, I've never really trusted Jesus. Today, I trust in Jesus. The Bible calls it repent. You basically turn your, your mind and your ways and you say, I'm done with my own ways and I'm choosing his ways. It's the most wonderfully selfish thing you could ever do because you eventually walk into a place of true peace and you become a person who learns to forget about yourself because you found true beauty and you found true meaning and you found a true sense of why you exist in this world. You exist for Him because He made you and He loves you and He's redeemed you with His love. I ask you to stand. Close your eyes with me. We're going to pray. I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to ask you to show yourself to me but I'm going to ask you Actually take that back. Firstly, I'm going to speak to followers of Jesus who are aware today that you need, to, you need to come home. You've been finding identity in all the wrong things. You've been finding identity in what you can accomplish and maybe even in, in your victimhood. Some of us here today, we find our identity in how hard life has been to us. and so We find it so easy to tell the story of how bad it's been. Do you know that's not what, I, what primarily identifies you, if you're a follower of Jesus? You're not a victim. You're one who's loved. You're a child. Maybe today you just have felt the, the fresh pressing of the Spirit on your heart, and you're going, I've got to turn. I've got to, I've got to find this stuff again. This is if you're a follower of Jesus, and you just you feel the sense of, I'm coming home. I'm going to ask you to pop up your hand with me and just show yourself and say, "Roger, pray with me. I, I I want to say yes freshly. I want to say yes freshly to God. Wonderful. You can put your hands down once you put them up. So many lovely hands. Just saying, here I am, Lord. I'm coming home. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. Wow. Maybe there's some of you saying, this is my first time. I just want to to come home. I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to start walking with Christ. I want to know this whole thing of relationship with Jesus. You just slip up your hand and slip it down so that I can know I'm praying with you and for you. You're saying yes to him. Wonderful. Wow. I pray with everyone, and let's just in a heart of celebration. There may be others, you know, it's, this is, putting your hand up didn't make it more real. Maybe you didn't have the courage to put your hand up, but God has got you right now. Hand might not have gone up, but tears are coming down. Hand might not have gone up, but your heart is alive to God right now. That's okay. Jesus, today we just thank you for your love. We thank you for your love in the storms. We thank you for your love over the storms. And we come freshly home to you. We come to your beautiful, accepting love that doesn't demand more of us, but gives more of yourself to us. You give all of yourself to us. And as we stand together, Lord, we, we stand in faith, thanking you for what you've done, thanking you for your beautiful love, and asking with the help of the Holy Spirit that we would less and less chase after those idols, those things that promise so much and deliver so little, and we turn to the living God. And we offer ourselves, like those sailors, they offered sacrifices, the New Testament says, offer your whole life. We offer our whole lives to you as a living sacrifice. We say, come, here we are, do with me whatever you will. You love us more than any of the idols that we've worshiped and that we trust in. We love you, Jesus. As we, we sing, we continue in a spirit of trust, in a spirit of gratitude that says, Thank you for the lot you've given us. Thank you for giving us yourself. Let's sing together.